one of the real life scenarios that you can find yourself in from time to time is either a water cooler uh, type of a conversation, or you may also find yourself in a conversation with uh, a son or daughter, a niece, a nephew, uh, somebody around uh, a soccer uh, match with the, with the kids or grandkids or, or something like that. And somebody just all of a sudden starts opening up and you're thinking, where in the world is this coming from? Well, let me throw out a, a, a scenario here and see what you think about some things, how, how you respond. Let's just say that you've got a, a sibling and this sibling has been, uh, uh, became a Christian later on in life and has decided to uh, marry uh, a little bit later on in life. And they come to you uh, knowing that you've been a Christian longer than them, that you've been uh, following the Lord uh, longer than them. And they say, how is it that a Christian wife or a Christian husband, how, how are they supposed to act? in the marriage relationship. What, what is a, a, a bride supposed to do or what is a husband uh, supposed to do? What would you do with that kind of a conversation if somebody just all of a sudden just dropped that at your feet and looked to you for help? What would you do? And you cannot call Robert Bennett, Justin Frazier or pastor. <laughs> Yeah, no lifelines, no lifeline. What would you do in that situation? Has anybody had a situation where somebody's just dropped something in front of you like that and you have no idea and it kind of catches you by surprise? And you're thinking, man, where is this coming from? Anybody had that happen? It's something that when you make yourself open to be used by the Lord and say, Lord, I want you to to use me. Or maybe you pray that prayer before, Lord, grow my faith. Lord, grow my dependence on you. It's one of the things that I've learned uh, to say to myself as well as others, always be careful what you pray for. Because if you're wanting to grow in your faith, the Lord will give you an opportunity for you to grow in your faith. If, he, if you are seeking to be able to grow in your dependence in him for strength, for encouragement in living, he will give you an opportunity to do that. And if you pray and really seek in to the Lord to be able to say, Lord, use me somehow, some way. I feel like I'm just out here in the world. I'm studying, I'm going to church, I'm doing things, but I just, I just don't understand what I'm supposed to be doing right now. Um, help me. And it'll be amazing how the Lord will bring somebody across your path. And it may be somebody to be able to help uh, with marriage. So where do we as Christians get our understanding of marriage from? It's right here from the Bible. But one thing that we have to be careful with in this day and time is will you allow the Bible to speak into your culture? Will you allow the Bible to speak into our culture? Or will you allow your view of the Bible to be shaped by culture. It's a thing that is a big, big issue in Christianity today. Two big theological words that describe this is exegesis and eisegesis. I don't know if you've heard pastor or others use these two words before, but it is two words that describe what type of biblical interpretation are you doing. Very similar uh, in the political world to those who are uh, constitutionalists, and then those who are uh, uh, free interpreters. Is, is that the right term? I can't remember what the other, uh, the other one is in law. Do you remember what it is, Gene? Yes. Yeah, that the Constitution is a living document that changes, but they are the only ones who know how it changes. That's one thing we need to remember is that they are the only one who knows how it changes. We don't have the capacity to know how it changes. Well, it's, it's very similar uh, with that kind of view of law and of our constitution because remember, uh, constitutionalists, the way that they see uh, uh, our United States Constitution, it, it was written in a time and a place 
uh, with certain principles. And those principles are timeless that can be applied toward any culture uh, at any time or anything because it goes back to, you remember how all the stuff goes about, you know, we the people and all that other kind of stuff in order to form a more perfect union, establish, come on, schoolhouse rock people. Yes, all of these things that go, that lay out what it means to have the founding of our Constitution. Those principles are timeless. And what those judges and those lawyers and those um, uh, members in Congress and others, if they are interpreting the Constitution that way, their first thought is, what did it mean to the framers? What principle were they trying to establish at that time? What type of freedom? What type of justice? Uh, what type of liberty? Uh, what type of protection were they trying to establish at that time? And now how do we apply that with what we're uh, facing today? Now, those who believe that the Constitution is a living document will say, well, that's what it meant to them back then. But today, here's what it means. And here's how it has changed. And then, of course, that begs the question, well, how do you know that it's changed? And then it's basically because this is how I interpret it. And you should interpret it the same way. Uh, because it is, again, you know, coming on self. And usually what that person will do who is a uh, free-flowing, living document constitutionalist is that they will allow whatever is the popular belief in culture or whatever is their personal beliefs to shape how they interpret the Constitution. That's why you have people uh, that can in interpret the Bill of Rights who will say that, yes, there's freedom of speech, but with freedom of speech, that also means that you can't offend anyone. And so freedom of speech means, yes, you have the freedom to say anything that you want to say as long as you don't offend me, but you can offend them, just don't offend me. And then that begs the question, okay, is that really freedom then? Where does that freedom, where does that, you know, that liberty go? Uh, and so that's the way that we have to understand that that applies also to the Bible, and there is a real big argument going on with all of this today in uh, pastoral and denomination circles about how do you interpret the Bible. Some people will read things in the Bible, and they will see proof texts all over the place about how the Lord uh, supposedly accepts homosexuality, or that the Lord uh, accepts divorce, uh, or that the Lord uh, accepts uh, all of these things that we see in other parts are talking about sin, but it just, it doesn't seem like that. It's right. Well, that kind of biblical interpretation is called eisegesis. You are taking your eye and you're putting it on the Bible, eisegesis. It's a Greek word talking about an interpretation, that prefix I is talking about an internal type of a thing, your beliefs that you're putting on scripture. Now, exegesis or exegetical preaching or, or exegetical teaching out of the Bible is taking what the Bible says, taking that out, and then applying it to our lives, looking for those timeless principles, those, those timeless truths that we can then say, okay, how does that fit and how does that apply with what we're struggling with and what we're going through today uh, in our lives and our culture and, and in things like that? And so we have to be very, very careful that we look at the Bible that way because there will be some things that the Bible will talk about that people just really freak out on. For example, we're gonna look at it here in just a second about wives submit to your husbands. Mm. Submit. And the People who are eisegetical in their interpretations or people who are non-Christian will see that and they will absolutely flip out. How in the world can the Bible, how in the world can God say to people, you must submit? Submit. Ah, that's such an archaic thing. And really what that means today is we really need to make sure that we are, uh, that we are just submitting to the nebulous of who the truth is in self. Because it's through self that we uh, see truth. And the truth that I have may be the, a different truth for you. But it's still truth. You know, because truth is subjective and there's no objective truth. And when somebody says that, what's your answer to them? It is, but then what do you say if somebody says there's no objective truth? 
Is that an objective truth statement? <laughs> so if you're going to say there's no objective truth and there's only truth that means to self, is that an objective truth? Well, of course, they just said in a self-defeating statement. And so we have to be careful of these things and making sure that we're allowing the Bible to speak to us. And so that's what my prayer is this morning as we go and we look at these things. So let's look at a whole entire example and a whole entire, I guess you can say, encapsulation of a review of uh, real quick of what we looked at last time uh, I talked about uh, gender roles, but also what it means to be uh, husband and wife. So let's start out with what we see and know in Galatians 3. We're going to be skipping around a little bit today, but let's start in Galatians 3, verses 28 and 29. And why don't you go ahead and turn there here just for a second. Galatians 3, 28 and 29. This is a central passage that is very much a passage that we need to make sure that we understand when it comes to our roles in family, um, in our uh, marriages, uh, but also in Christian community. Um, this is a passage I know that many of you know, but let me remind you of it uh, again as I read it here this morning. Uh, Galatians 3, 28 and 29. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring heirs according to promise. Well, Will, what in the world does that mean? If we're talking... <laughs> yes, this is what some people use, seriously, who are eisegetical in their teaching and their belief of the Bible that they are willing to put their own ideas on the Bible. They will say this is a proof text for uh, gender neutrality in a way that you can... Uh, well, and that's, and that's the importance of what we're going to look at today is that you have to look at the totality of Scripture and how everything applies and everything goes into um, what is the full theology of what we were created to be as male and female, but also the roles that we have as male and female and as husband and wives. But as we see in this passage, one of the things that, that we, we see is that there are no differences between who we are in Christ and how God sees us. We have equal worth. There is no slave nor free. There is no Jew nor Greek. There's no racism. There is no uh, uh, status uh, of uh, economic status or work status. There is no um, uh, uh, sexual identity or any of that kind of stuff in, in Christ. We are all the same. We have all of the same uh, footing as, as the popular preacher saying is for many years, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. We're all there at the cross of Christ and we're all there equally. And this is actually affirmed over in Genesis 1. And you can make a note of this and go back and look at it later. Over in Genesis 1 verses 26 through 31, Lord confirms the equality of personhood being, being made in the image of God as having something that is like God, meaning that we have an eternal spirit, that both male and female have that. We also see something in that we have equal worth, but we have different roles. And sometimes you'll hear from people that roles have a hierarchy and that some roles are better than other roles. And men can't think that their roles are better uh, than the other roles because the other roles are actually more important than this or that and the other and people will get into all of this kind of conflict and they'll get into this kind of argument that well you can't have roles everybody's supposed to share all these roles uh, the same well that's not how the Lord uh, created us to be if we look over in Genesis 2 and if you'll look at that here Genesis 2 verse 15 the Lord talks about creation and creating man and woman, and he talks about the roles that he created us to have. Genesis 2 verse 15 says this, the Lord took the man and put him in the garden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat for in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. 
Then the Lord God said, it is not good that a man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. Uh, the man gave names to all the livestock and the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this is the bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She should be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and will hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. This role that is mentioned here for men and women is and can be uh, misinterpreted. And the reason that can be misinterpreted is because people see this word as helper, as demeaning. But again, if you go back to be able to see what does that original Hebrew word mean in that instance, what we see is that that word was meant as a compliment. It was meant as a fit. It was meant as a, there was something missing. Because remember, the Lord brought all the animals to Adam and Adam was, was naming all of them, but there wasn't a suitable helper for him or basically a suitable mate. There wasn't another created being that was like him, that could be his complement, that could be his helper. Uh, let's dive into this a little bit more. In verse 15 in chapter two, one of the things that we see is that work is not sinful. <laughs> work is not sinful. You have to see it this way. God had a purpose. He created us all for a purpose. And in, when he created Adam, he had some things for him to do and gave Adam a purpose. And work, when we're working for the Lord and doing things his way, work is not meant to be sinful. It's to be able to give us purpose. It's to be able to give us uh, meaning. It's to be able to give us deep, um, uh, a type of relationship uh, with the Lord uh, that is a, uh, a communal type of a thing to where we are seeking to be in his will and do his will and he has things for us to do. That's why we're talking about today about these roles, but also about what it means not only to apply it to ourselves, but be ready at any time, any place to be able to help somebody else out with it, because that is our purpose of Christian, as being Christians, to be ambassadors. And so if we don't know God's word, then we are not completely and totally ready to be able to be used by him. But because you're here today listening to this and studying this, I believe the Lord is going to use some of you this week, maybe even today, to be able to encourage somebody else uh, in their marriage or things that they're going through. Another thing that we see in verse 18 uh, is the Lord used not good. Not good had not been used by the Lord up until this point because at the end of each day of creation, what did the Lord say at the end of it? It is good. But when he came and saw that the man did not have any kind of suitable complement or suitable uh, uh, type of um, uh, helper as uh, uh, the Bible also uses. This is the first time he designated something as not ideal. And what happens is that when he deems something as good, he is deeming it as this is exactly how it's supposed to be. This is exactly how things are gonna uh, uh, work out. This is exactly how and what uh, is needed and very good as he talks about in verse uh, Genesis 1 31 the creation of mankind was not pronounced ideal until both Adam and Eve had been created and so that's an important aspect for us to be able to know uh, about uh, the roles of men and women uh, another thing that we see in this passage is that woman as I said was created as a complement to man as a complement to man in verse 18 and 20 as I said this word helper, uh, this Hebrew word does not suggest something that is demeaning. It does not suggest something that is less important or less valuable. And using the same term, the same Hebrew term, God even described himself as a helper for his own children. He did this in Exodus 18 verse 4. 
He did this in Deuteronomy 33, verse 7. He even did this in Psalm 20, verse 2. But however, helper does suggest, though, a distinct role for woman since Eve was created as a helper or a complement for Adam and not the other way around. In the Hebrew, this description uh, of the kind of helper that Eve was to be created is one who is like him or one who is corresponding to or one who is comparable to. This suggests that the woman will be like him in contrast to all the animals that he names in verses 19 and 20. Because remember, God made us both in the image of him. We have equal worth before the Lord. Verse 22, the Lord literally fashioned and made Eve. He is the creator and he decided to make female and Adam male. With this type of same material that he created Eve out of, that Adam was made off, off of, this is a, um, uh, why in verse 23, this whole wordplay that's going on in Hebrew about man and woman is so meaningful because it is using the same root of what a person is and is applying that also to what he named her in female. Because with the different animals, he named them different things. But with Eve, it was an exact derivative that was from his own name, just like he was taken from his own side. And so that's again showing about how they have this equal personhood made in the image of God, made in uh, his uh, distinct plan, have equal value. But we also see that marriage roles are different in the things that they do in marriage. They're created as equals. They have different roles that they have that God originally created them to do. But then after the fall and after sin, that relationship that they had with each other also continued to change as a result of sin, but also with how the Lord uh, set things out. In Ephesians 5, this is uh, another uh, famous passage that we're going to look at about the roles of um, husbands and wives and men and women. It's very important that we look at this passage and we interpret it now in light of creation, in light of what we know about God's intent for us and remembering that we are male and female, both created in his image. Because now this is where as uh, uh, one of my favorite uh, 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 philosophers, uh, the great Nacho Libre says that we are getting down here to the nitty gritty uh, because it is about to get really up close and personal here. Ephesians 5, verse 18, here's what it says. It says, and do not get drunk with wine for that is debauchery but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should, should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish in the same way, Husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not promote uh, or provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. We see two things here 
And the thing that I want you to see here is that it has a way that it describes what the role of the wife is, but it also has a thing that it describes about the role of the husband and what the husband is supposed to do. And sometimes that's what you see that people forget about. They get so hung up on verse 22 that wives should submit to their own husbands that they fail to see and read the context of what that is given in. And I'm going to read and explain here some of these things about what this context means. What we see about the role of the husband in the home is that men are to be, wait for it, men are to be the lead servants in the home. When's the last time you heard somebody who's having problems with women submitting talk also about how men are supposed to be the lead servants? They always seem to forget that part. They always want to get hung up. Wives, submit to your husbands. Women, you don't need to submit. Don't do that. That's demeaning. That's not what God meant back then. Well, if you look at it in context, as we're going to do right now, you're going to see that this role of women submitting is much, much deeper, much, much higher, much, much more uh, richer than people seem to think of when they first look at it. Men are to be lead servants in the home. As we see, men are to serve others like all in Christ are supposed to do, as we see in verses 18, 18 through 21. In these verses, in Ephesians 5, 18 through 21, it talks about our role as Holy Spirit-filled and led Christians and how we're to serve each other. Now, this is consistent as we see and started this study here this morning with, with Galatians 3, 28 and 29, about how we have equal standing before the Lord because we are both male and female made in the image of God. So men are to be the lead servants in the home and men are to be the leader in the home. Men are to be the leader in the home. So they are the lead servants, meaning they serve everybody within the family, including the wife, and they are to be the leader in serving their wives in that. Well, so what does that look like? In verses 23 and 24 of Ephesians 5, we see that the husband is the head of the wife, like Christ is the head of the church, and the wife should submit to the husband. But here is the kicker that sometimes even we as well-meaning Christians forget. What kind of leader then are we supposed to be if it says that we're to be a servant leader, men? What kind of servant does that mean? What kind of, how, do, how do we interpret that? If we are to be the leader in the home, well, what kind of leader are we supposed to be? Are we supposed to be one that because of our position that we demand respect and because of our position that means that people should just free-flowingly just give us respect and honor and all of this other kind of stuff just because we walk into the room to the family? Because we all know how that will go if you try to pull that. I like telling the story about how when I got married, my wife... Um, had this strange kind of thing come full circle for her because my wife and I are three years apart. We grew up in the same town uh, in Oklahoma City. But the way that the high school was back then, once you got to high school, um, the building uh, for the freshmen and sophomores was at one part of the city, and then the building for juniors and seniors was in another part. And so my wife and I, because we were three years apart, uh, we were never in the same high school together. Uh, once we got to that age. Well, I have uh, younger brothers who are twins, and they're two years younger than me. And guess who they had in some of their high school classes? My wife. One of the favorite things that my brothers like to uh, say to my wife when we were in the engagement period and getting going, we would be saying some things or, or talking some things about the wedding or moving into the apartment or, or whatever. And uh, one of my brothers would love to point out 
to Janelle, you better submit to my brother. And you could see that little Italian woman of mine, you could see that Italian blood begin to boil and all this other kind of stuff when she would hear my brother say, submit, submit to my brother. And I knew at that time that I was going to have to look at some things a little bit differently and learn a little bit more about what it means to be a husband in the home because I saw that I had a, uh, and that's another thing that I love about my wife. She's a very strong woman being an Italian, has a lot of um, uh, uh, self-motivation, has a lot of self-confidence. In fact, one of the things that got me to notice her at the Baptist Student Union at Oklahoma State University uh, when we were growing up is that I saw that she was one of the only girls who would ever go to the bathroom by themselves. And I don't know why I, I, that just that just stuck out to me as wow, you know here is a young lady who can go to the, to the bathroom by themselves because they don't have to take you know four or five of them of her friends to the bathroom, and so uh, I like that about my wife. But I also had to learn that with that strong personality and with that strong type of thing, we were going to have some things in our marriage. <laughs> Especially with my background uh, being very Southern, very non-confrontational, being very manners. You don't speak what you mean. You don't, uh, you don't say anything that could be rude. And in her family, everything is right up in your face. And the first time I went to an Italian Christmas there on the East Coast, I literally thought the cops were going to be called. Somebody was going to get stabbed. I was going to have to be a witness. I was going to have to, you know, say that they did it. And I was going to be all by myself on Christmas Day because the rest of my family was going to be in jail. But no, at the end of that Christmas Eve party night, all these Italians who'd been yelling and screaming through a five-hour dinner because they had like four or five courses and I've never experienced something like that in my whole entire life where a dinner took five hours to be able to go through it all. They all, after yelling and screaming and pointing at each other all night, looked at each other, gave the, uh, the Italian way that you uh, greet and also say goodbye with big hugs, kisses on both cheeks, even the men, and said this was one of the best nights we have ever had as a family. We need to do this more often. Everybody leaves, and there I am thinking, dear God, what have I gotten into? Exactly. I am in, it was like my family and my whole world had been where I grew up, if you explain it in movies or music or whatever. Uh, my life was like Sweet Home Alabama. Her life was like The Godfather, and they were coming together. What was I in for? Exactly. Sweet Home Godfather. You know, I, I don't know what I, what I was in for. But one of the things that I learned through this and getting to know my wife and us talking about these issues, that she was looking for a godly husband. Even though that she was one who was very strong, very independent, she was looking for a husband and someone who could lead and be the kind of godly husband that she knew that God wanted to have her. And so I had to begin to study these passages and find out, well, what kind of leader does it mean to be a man. Well, I had to be a sacrificial, loving leader like Christ. In verses 25 and 27 of Ephesians 5, this is an incredibly challenging command in a few English words that says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. In those few English words, we forget as men what that really means because we have to go back and we have to realize well how did jesus show love to the church he sacrificed himself because what does the bible say that we are as the church we are called the body of christ but we're also called the the bride of christ and what did he do for us he served us in ways that people saw that were very demeaning. Remember washing the disciples' feet? How he served that way? 
You remember what that was in that society, in that cultural context? Someone who was the one who would wash somebody else's feet was seen as the lowest of lowest of society jobs. In fact, it was so low, even those who had responsibilities in that area in the family would always look for somebody who was either an indentured servant or some other type of um, uh, slave or something else to be able to uh, wash somebody's feet when they came in because it was so demeaning and it was looked on so negatively in that culture. But when it came time for the Last Supper, what did Jesus do? He did the most demeaning role in society as a way to serve the disciples in that time and that place. What else did Jesus do that was counterculture to be able to show and serve equal worth with people? Do you remember what he allowed women to do? When he would teach as a rabbi, he would allow women to sit at his feet. <gasps> in our culture, we have no idea what that means. Women sitting near your feet, what does that mean? We were sitting down for a picnic, I don't know. Well, in that culture, that was a major, major no-no because women weren't supposed to be educated. Women did not have in that culture value to where their intellect or their uh, knowledge or even in theology with the Jewish teachers and Jewish rabbis, they were not seen as meaning to find out any of that kind of information. They were not worthy enough to be able to sit at Jesus' feet. But yet he allowed women to be able to sit at his feet and he would teach them the truth of Scripture. Again, showing sacrifice, servanthood, worth uh, in women. This is a far cry from the chauvinistic way the world cries out and makes fun of, of what this passage says. We also have to remember that being a sacrificial, loving leader means that we are to care for our wives just like we care for our own body. Men, do you like to breathe? I bet you if we got any of you right now in a rear naked choke that you would be tapping out real quickly. I bet you would because you want to breathe. And those of you who don't know who, what a rear naked choke is, come up here. I will smack that down on you so fast. Let me get you when is it like this. I can't remember. I have to practice on my brothers later on. My brothers and I practice. We've been practicing all of our wrestling moves on each other for a really long time. You all remember in professional wrestling, the, uh, the Von Erich family from way back, 1980s, 1970s. Oh, yeah, my brothers and I were practicing all those moves on each other and got into a lot of trouble. Uh, we've also been trying to teach our kids uh, some of these moves and they just do not seem interested and think it's as funny uh, as my brothers and I do uh, think it's funny. But that's a little rabbit. Coming right back. A sacrificial loving leader sees that caring and loving his wife is the same as taking care of his own body. If we like to breathe and we have a desire to breathe, we should be able to see in our wives we want to meet that a need in her just as strongly as we want to breathe ourselves. Have you thought about that? Do you like to eat? I bet you do. We all like to eat. The Bible says we're to love and take care of our wives with the same kind of desire and motivation as we feed ourselves. And we're to think about that and serve our wives in that way. This physical example of the body also illustrates how Christ takes care of the body that is the church and the unity of Christ and the church has with the husband and wives. We see all these examples all over the place of how Jesus served. Should we be willing to take a bullet for our wives and our families? Yes. Should we be willing to be tortured for our wives and for our families? Yes. That's what Jesus did. And, and the Bible says that we are to love our wives in the same way that Jesus loved the church. Jesus went through torture, physical torture for the church, for us. So that, what does that passage say? That the church may be present holy and blameless. 
When's the last time that we thought of our wives that we should be able to sacrifice so much for them that we can present them as holy and wonderful and blameless? Because we think so much more of them than we do of ourselves. It's a stark contrast to what people see. They see this, wives submit. But the reason that they say wives submit is because of the role of the husband that's laid out. Because the husband's to be the lead servant, the sacrificial leader, just like Christ was, the sacrificial servant, just like Christ. But also we see in verse 22 through 25 that in this passage, men are not to make their wives submit. The Bible doesn't say, thou shalt make thy wife submitteth. Well, then, Will, that begs the question, then what are the wives supposed to do? Well, that submission is between them and the Lord. We're to be the servant leader. We're to be the sacrificial leader. We're to be the leader just like Christ is to her and in that, in that family. And then that submission to the husband is because she is supposed to be led by someone who is Christ-like. The times that I failed in my marriage and not treating my wife the way I should treat her are the times that I have not been Christ-like. When I'm not serving her, thinking of her before myself, I've had to learn that being a servant is not the crazy things that I think it is sometimes. Sometimes it's just as simple as walking by the kitchen sink seeing that there are dishes and washing them and drying them and putting them up. I had no idea what that meant to my wife and what she thought of me when I just look at ordinary household chores and instead of walking by and thinking that somebody else will get to that or do them, if I sit down and do that of what that means to my wife and how she interprets that, that I'm thinking of her and the family before myself. Absolutely, man. I've, I've had some great uh, times in my marriage of dates uh, and uh, just times uh, of talking and just uh, developing uh, my relationship with my wife because I took the time to fold laundry. And I just, I didn't understand it. Because when my wife saw me serving her and serving the family, it just lit a fire under her in seeing that I wasn't thinking about myself. It's amazing what I have found in my own marriage, what happens when I practice these things myself. So the Bible doesn't tell us to make our wife submit. That's between her and the Lord. In this passage and others, like we see in Colossians 3 and also in 1 Peter 3, uh, the, the do not uh, command or say that the husband tells, the wife doesn't, uh, isn't commanded by the husband to submit. That's between her and the Lord. But submission does not mean that men are more intelligent, more spiritual, more faithful, or more important. It does not mean that men get their way all the time. Submission is not an excuse for a man to talk down to his wife or to build himself up by tearing her down. Submission is never an excuse for abuse. We have to make sure of that, that we realize that we do not make our wives submit. That's between her and the Lord. And that submission is not an excuse for abuse. Another limitation that we see on this uh, role of uh, men and husbands in the home is that we are not to abuse or mistreat children. Ephesians 6 verse 4 says, Being a father is not an excuse for being abusive. Leading children involves strength as well as gentleness. And if fathers lead their children harshly, their chances of rebellion increase. But that's why it's important to lead as Christ led and to teach them the ways of the Lord. One of the things you may be getting to right now is saying, Will, it's 704, and you've hardly touched on the role of women. <laughs> As you well know, those of you who have heard me teach before, there is some method to my madness. And here it is as I wrap up this morning. Women and men have equal worth, but we have different roles. But when it comes right down to it, the way that we see in passage, in passage of Scripture, to be the leader and have the lead role in the home, who has the most responsibility? 
there is a lot of detail, a lot of things that the Bible talks about of what the husband's role is to look like and how the husband's role is supposed to play out in a family. That's why in my own life and in people that I have been counseling over my 25 years of marriage and when I do premarital counseling, just like I was when I was in premarital counseling, I did premarital counseling with my wife's youth pastor and he let me have it for two months. And I had no idea why he was letting me have it until we really got to this passage and saw that men, if we do our role in the home, in the marriage, the way that we're supposed to do, as servant leaders, as Christ led and sacrificed, it sets up our wives, it sets up our children to be able to do their roles easier. It doesn't 100% ensure success or any of that kind of stuff, but they can see Christ in us. They can see that we're leading out of servanthood. And when they see our focus on Christ, it's an amazing what a father, what a husband can do for a family if the family sees and recognizes that a husband is sold out to the Lord and is willing to serve the family and the wife the way Christ served. Issues of submission, really not there like they are when the husband is not showing Christ. It's really amazing. When I got to teach this lesson to uh, the Adult One community on Sunday, it was really interesting when I got to this part and I saw all the young wives in the room, they started with big smiles on their faces and some of them were cuddling up to their husbands a little bit when I was talking about this. And that was a great sign to me that it seemed like that there were some husbands in that room who had been modeling Christ and serving like Christ served with their wives. And it really made that relationship special to that wife uh, in that moment. Some of the sweetest times I've had in my marriage over the last 23 years has been when I just focused on trying to be the servant and to love my wife the way that, that Christ loved the church, thinking of her before me willing to sacrifice for her before me because it's in that that she was set up to be able to do her role better because she was looking for me to be able to lead as Christ led and it just really made her heart and made her attitude and things just really have a more fondness toward me. And I have to remind myself, and I've even given my wife permission in those early days, and she's been my accountability partner for the last 23 years. I said, sweetheart, I don't want another man to be my closest accountability partner. I want you to do it. And in fact, I want you to do it so much that I want you to, when I get out of line as a husband, when I get out of line as a father, I want you to very lovingly tell me just this past week, and I'll close with this. We had an opportunity to look at some things that we were doing uh, with our uh, money at the end of the month. We give our tithes, but we also have money that we give as offerings, and we support uh, uh, other uh, Christian organizations. Like, y'all remember uh, Kelly Shackelford from the First Liberty Institute. He's, he hasn't spoken here in about two years or so, uh, but he is arguing religious liberty cases in front of the Supreme Court, seems like all the time. Uh, we help them out. We help out things with Compassion International. We do some of these things like this. Uh, my wife came to me with somebody brand new that she felt like we ought to take a look at and see about giving them a little bit of money. Well, I looked at it and I said, nah, no, we're not going to give any money to that. And she said, well, let's just look at it a little bit more as, as a couple. Let's look at it and see, uh, see what uh, it, it is doing, what the Lord is doing in, in this work and in these people's lives. Nah, sweetheart, I, I, I think we're good. Let's just go ahead and do something else with this. And then she looked at me and she goes, have you prayed about that? 
<laughs> when she says that, it takes me back to our times in premarital counseling when I told her, sweetheart, I want you to help me when I am not being as I should as, as, a, as a leader of the home and a leader to you. I want you to remind me. And that was a great reminder for me this week. And we prayed about it as a couple, looked at it seriously. And you know what? We're going to give them some of our offering money <laughs> this week because the Lord is doing a great work with them over in Eastern Europe. But men, I challenge you. I challenge you. Practice these words. Practice being a sacrificial leader. Practice loving your wife before yourself. Taking care of her before yourself. And see how things go. In my instances, when I've done these things, I've had all of my needs met when I serve her and meet her needs. Y'all know what I'm talking about. It's amazing of how when I think about her first, it's made a lot easier in our marriage because she sees the role that I'm supposed to play as seen in Scripture. I challenge you with that. I challenge you to go and talk to your wives about this, talk to your families, and, and be ready. You never know. The Lord may bring someone across your path that you may be able to encourage and point them to what the role of a good, godly Christian husband should be this week. I pray you'll use these passages. I pray you'll lovingly, kindly encourage that man. I pray that you will be willing to pray for them. Get your hands dirty a little bit and spend some time with them, purposeful time to encourage them and help them know how to be better in their marriage and see what the Lord may do with that in you and your life. Lord, I thank you for these men. I thank you for the time that we spent today in your word. I pray that you encourage them just like you've encouraged and reminded me in the study and preparation for this about how we as men and how we act as Christian leaders and lead servants and sacrificial servants in the home help sets up our wives and our children to be able to do their roles better. Father, I pray you help us to be able to uh, do things where, um, and to be able to see things that we can practice this in our own lives, even today. And I also pray that you'll help us where if you may bring somebody across our path in, the, in these next couple of days who may ask us something about marriage or a secret to marriage or, or something like that, I pray that you will allow us to be able to remember these words of Scripture and encourage others with how we have had aspects that when we practice this like we should of how our marriage has been sweet and when we as men have not led as Christ led and sacrificed and served of how those were times when we were leading our family wrongly. Father, we thank you again that you care about us and our marriages. Strengthen us and allow us to be able to be that which you created us to be. In Jesus' name we pray.